Good morning, Saints. Good morning. This is, uh, seems like week, like 785 in Luke, uh, but we're going to continue in verse, or chapter 20 today. Uh, I was reading the scripture, like a Bible summary with my kids last night, and um, we read about King Josiah, and we were, we were thinking together about the response to, of, you know, of Israel when they got the word back. And so even though we've been in this text, in this, in this passage forever, hopefully we can still have some enthusiasm about it. And so, um, yeah, this is, this is a good one. So we got a lot to say today, because uh, we got to cover the resurrection and like all of marriage and everything like that. And so we'll just go ahead and jump right on in. And so we are just continuing to follow Jesus throughout Luke's gospel. And now we're in Jerusalem for Passover week. And this story takes place during the final week of Jesus' life, which we often call the Passover week, or sorry, the Passion Week. There you go. Someone was correcting me. And so during, uh, during Passover, the population in Jerusalem would swell to several times its normal size. And then Jesus arrived. He had a captive audience to continue his teaching ministry. And then when Jesus arrived, he also almost immediately drove out the money changers out of the temple, and he began teaching in their place. So this infuriated, naturally, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and, and the scribes and so forth, and they, and they wanted to defame Jesus. So it infuriated them, and they were trying to figure out how they can uh, sort of sully Jesus' uh, sort of popular uh, ideas that he was sort of putting out there. And so last week we, we talked about how Jesus responded to these religious leaders with a parable um, of coming judgment. And when they understood that this sort of parable of judgment was about them, they did exactly what Jesus had predicted, and they started preparing to kill him. I find that fairly ironic, that they got so mad that Jesus was right, that they did exactly what he said they were going to do. And so, a girl in the first service over here thought that was hilarious, so I need her back. It wasn't quite an amen corner, but it was a, a, la, a ha-ha corner or something like that. So, uh, but all, all that to say, and so uh, the religious leaders, they ended up trying to do, uh, try to do at least two things to execute Jesus. And so first, they needed to turn public opinion against him. They had to turn public opinion against Jesus to have him executed. And so remember, Jesus spent his life around the people who were coming into Jerusalem. He was dining with people. He spent his life performing miracles among them, and most importantly, teaching scripture to them. And so now all these people were now in town for Passover, and when Jesus arrived, remember, they sang Hosanna, they put palm branches in the, in the way and their coats on the ground, and they were declaring, blessed uh, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus was soaring in the, in the public opinion polls. And Jesus, and because Jesus was so beloved, the religious leaders feared that trying to arrest him amid the sea of his followers would result in them becoming a mob trying to protect him. You guys see how that works, right? And so the second thing they had to do uh, to execute Jesus was to charge him against, uh, to make a charge against him that the government would recognize. And so they came up with some, some questions to stump Jesus, uh, in which like we looked at this last week, uh, the one about paying taxes to Rome or not. And they figured that Jesus would say either yes or no. And if he said yes, then it would, uh, it would, it would turn his followers against them. They wanted Jesus to fight Rome, not to fund Rome. 
And if he said no, they'd be able to turn him over to the Roman government because he, they would be able to say, this man is telling people to rebel against you. And so they had this well-crafted trap. It was supposed to, to, to help with at least one of their two goals, either turning the people or the government against Jesus. And so basically Jesus was like, they were like, hey, Jesus, A or B? And Jesus was like, C. <laughs> His answer was completely unexpected. Uh, it simultaneously appeased the people and then kept the Roman government off of his back. And so th- since this political trap didn't work, then, okay, well, now we've got to try to trap him theologically. And this is where it comes down to this story, about this question about the resurrection. And so what we're going to try to do is this. So we're going we're to outline this text in three different parts. The first little chunk, the first verse, verse 27, is the introduction the second chunk, the question, is verses 28 through 33. And the third chunk, the answer to their question, is verses 34 and following. Okay, so in verse 30, uh, 27, it introduces us to the Sadducees. And it introduces us also to one of their theological hallmarks. And this is how the verse reads. Uh, there came to him, that is Jesus, some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection. And so this, this verse alone gives us a lot of information to begin to set the foundation for this passage this morning. And so this is the only place in, the, in, the, um, in Luke's gospel where the Sadducees show up. And basically it was saying everybody in them was coming out of the woodwork to try to get Jesus. And so now the Sadducees said, okay, it's our turn to sort of fl- to flex our political, social, uh, intellectual muscles on Jesus. And so keep in mind real quick, the Pharisees... The Sadducees are not Pharisees. Don't think uh, Sadducees and and think uh, self-righteous, pompous teachers of the law. That's the Pharisees. We're not not team Pharisee around here. But when you think Sadducees, think old money, name recognition, formal affirmations with the high priestly family, and, and being in with political leaders. That's who you think about when you think about Sadducees. So in short, these are very, very powerful people. And so in addition to their social standing, one of the theological hallmarks is their disbelief in the resurrection. So it made them sad, you see? So uh, th- thanks for giving me that one. I had to, I had to just, just one time, one time. <laughs> so these Sadducees, that joke, right? That joke. Kendrick, quiet. They're all embarrassed of me. And so, uh, so... <laughs> They believed in this here and now lifestyle. And so one of the arguments that, um, one, one of the best ways to start an argument with the Pharisee was to talk about the resurrection. And so this is exactly what the Apostle Paul did in Acts chapter 23. You guys remember that passage? Probably not, so I'm going to help you. So he was on trial against the Sanhedrin. And, and when you think Sanhedrin, think a legislative body by, uh, of the high priest, and it was mixed of Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he was on trial before the Sanhedrin, and he realized that this, this religious like, sort of body was a mixed group. He was like, look, in, in verse 6, he said, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is, res- it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And basically, Paul just threw a theological Molotov cocktail right into the room. And it did exactly what he was hoping for. It divided the Sanhedrin amongst themselves. And then Paul's off the hook. And so as I was thinking about this text, I was thinking like it was like Looney Tunes when you got Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote and they get in that big, 
you know, thing, you see like a foot and a hand like pop out every once in a while, and then eventually you see like the roadrunner like crawl out from under the pile, and the wily e. coyote's beating himself up. Anyway, so that's what I thought about when, <laughs> when this had happened. And so uh, it was like, okay, I, I, I started, I got to finish it. It was like Paul was like the roadrunner, like crawling out of the pile to safety. And so he, he ended it. <laughs> so all it said, the Sadducees hate the resurrection, y'all. And so, uh, it, so it, that's an example of it in Acts chapter 23. Anyway, so before we move on to, to verse 28 in this week's chapter, uh, there's a warning for us here. And so the Sadducees, they focused on a here and now lifestyle that was driven by their wealth and material possessions. And so what I'm saying, or what I'm, what I'm, not, what I'm not saying is that those who are wealthy cannot come into the kingdom of God. What I'm saying is that material possessions and comfort can dampen our thirst for the kingdom. So we have to be aware of that. So if we let it, it will dampen our thirst for the kingdom. We can confuse the fleeting happiness that money can buy with true and abiding joy in Christ. So all to say, uh, if there was one man in Israel who threatened the Sadducees' whole way of life, it was Jesus. So they, they, they resented Jesus' uh, rising popularity, and so alas, they asked this question in verse 28 to 33. And so uh, here we go. And, and they asked him, a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife uh, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And here's their little uh, predicament that they put to Jesus, verse 29. And now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died Afterward, the woman also died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And as I was studying the passage this week, verse 30 stuck out to me for a second. If you're ever asked to, like, read a verse, and, you know, just on the spot, you can just go to Luke chapter 20, verse 30, and say, and the second. May the Lord bless the hearing of his word. Amen and amen. And so just, if you never, that's, that's the one, kids, if you're at Thanksgiving, because at my house growing up, they'd be like, all right, everyone say a verse. And then Jesus wept, would get took like that. And then like now, there you go. And the second. <laughs> amen. Okay, so back to marriage. Um, so the, the Sadducees think they've outsmarted Jesus, but in the end, their question demonstrates their own ignorance. So they took the, this illustration to an absurd conclusion, and it backfired on them. And so, so basically, th these dudes sincerely thought they had Jesus trapped with these details and things like that. They assumed that because no brother had left an heir, that none of them had a real advantage to have this woman as their wife in the resurrection. And now some of you guys might be thinking, what kind of polygamous nonsense is this? And if you're not, you should, because this is weird. We don't do this anymore here in America, 2023. And so, uh, but what was going on at that time was called a Leverite responsibility, which is, was for the a deceased brother, or no, sorry, he can't marry nobody, for the deceased, the brother of the deceased to marry the wife if they left no heir, which was a male child. 
Okay, and so you remember uh, Ruth and Boaz? Remember that story? Sparks flew, Boaz and Ruth, they're about to get married, and then Boaz was like, oh, there's like a nearer kin than I am? Somebody please act like you read the Bible. That's Leverite marriage right there. He's saying there's someone who's nearer to her who has first right of refusal, and then after that, you know, if he refused, which he did, then Boaz was able to, to marry her. So that's the way this sort of worked out. And you guys, uh, what this did, it protected the woman at that time. It kept bloodlines intact, but it also sustained family resources, especially the land that can only be carried on by in a man's name. And so, so this is the setup. And let's see what Jesus did with it as he answers them in verses 34 to 40. But before we do that, the answer is in two parts. One's about the future of marriage, and the second part's about the resurrection from the dead. Okay, here, here we go, verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So what in the world just happened here? So their question is basically moot, because there will be no marriage in heaven to even talk about. And so Jesus refused their premise, and because they assumed they, that, they, that the same conditions uh, that govern now are going to govern then, you know, it's, just, it's, just, it's a non-conversation. And so uh, Pastor Tony last week, he hyped up this sermon because he was like, yeah, and Pastor Walter's going to tell you if you're going to be married in the resurrection life. But all you had to do is read forward, and you find out the answer is no. <laughs> and so, because the question is not if you'll be married, but why won't you be married? And so, so this, this, is it. this is it. You won't be married because the primary functions of marriage will be either fulfilled or, or no longer useful in the kingdom, okay? The primary functions of marriage will either be fulfilled or no longer useful in the kingdom. And so some of the primary purposes of marriage can be summed up in these three words, companionship, sanctification, and procreation. I know there's a lot more, but I'm just trying to, we don't have all day. Uh, companionship, sanctification, and procreation. And we'll spend some time in each to see how they're either fulfilled or no longer uh, of use in the age to come. So be, beginning with companionship. So we remember in uh, Genesis chapter, chapter 2, verse 18, when God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So immediately after that verse, uh, it, it talks about how Adam was given the task of naming the animals. So, hey, there's no help, there's no help, help or fit for you. And then God gives him the task, naming the animals, looking at literally every other thing that God created, naming it. And at the end of it, uh, it was evident that there was no helper that was fit for him. He basically combed through all that God had made, and it says, there's no helper fit for me. And, and so, said differently, there was no companion for him. And so neither God nor animals were of the same kind as Adam. And so God created woman, and Adam said, the first sort of outburst of poetry in all the Bible, he said, this, at last, that's a that's sort of poetic sort of jeer there, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so uh, she was 
of the same kind. And in verse 24, we find the, the language that's later quoted in Ephesians chapter 5, saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This language that's quoted later confirms that this is, in fact, the first marriage. One man, one woman before God. And so the intent of this union was for uh, human beings to have companionship that they couldn't have with an animal, even though people like dogs and stuff, which I, I, I get. People like cats too. I don't understand, but, you know, it's there. Uh, or even with God himself in, you know, on this, in this world. And so for those who are frustrated that I just sort of sped past the part where I told you that you won't be married in heaven, I get it. I understand. I haven't forgotten you. And if this realization causes you some sadness, know this. I don't think scripture gives us any indication that we won't remember the good memories from this world, okay? I don't think, I don't think, I don't think we're gonna just, our minds are just gonna be erased in the kingdom. I think you'll recognize your spouse. I think you'll have fond memories of each other, but that relationship will be superseded uh, with the most fulfilling companionship that you've ever had. And that's companionship with Jesus. So in fact, if you truly love your spouse, one of the best things that you can do for them is want this for them in the future. Because in the future, your spouse will be perfectly loved for the first time. And, won't, and, 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 so, and, because, and they won't be frustrated with a sinner like you. And so you actually want them to go and be in the kingdom. And so the irony is, is that you'll be able to love your spouse more, not even being married to them, because sin won't compromise your relationship with the person that was your spouse. And also, think about this, because the, the fights and quarrels that mark us as a, as a people that James 4 talks about will not be there either, because we will be able to actualize the full potential of every relationship that we have, even with those who are there in the kingdom. That's good news. That's an amazing thing. And so in the end, our companionship with Jesus, that every saint will enjoy, will be our greatest joy. So companionship, also marriage is the catalyst for sanctification. We know that when two sinners get together, living in, in close quarters for a long period of time, there's countless opportunities for both spouses to humble themselves, live selfish, selflessly, Love unconditionally and exercise kindness, because it always goes down like that. <laughs> and we laugh because we know it doesn't. But in marriage, there is an opportunity to pursue that, to push hard after that. The, the idea of, 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 of living um, selflessly and living humbly and, uh, and exercising kindness and, and, and lavishing on grace, that's a means of sanctifying us. You see that? And so marriage is a context to believe all things and to hope all things, but it's hard work. And so this kind of relational intensity refines us. But after the resurrection, uh, those who have been justified, that's been saved uh, from our sin, uh, have undergone the, the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, will one day be glorified, being free from sin ourselves and free from sin around us, and we'll no longer have to strive for righteousness. We'll no longer have to fight temptation. 
will no longer need to endure the sanctification process because God will see through to completion what he's begun on us, uh, in us at our justification. And I don't know about you, but that is good news. If you spend your life, in which we all should, fighting for righteousness, you guys understand what that's like? Taking every word captive, taking every click captive, taking every thought captive. This is hard work. There is coming a day when we won't have to do that any longer. And that is good news. Lastly, so first we had companionship, sanctification, now procreation. The final purpose of marriage that we'll examine today is this. And so in verse 36 of today's text, it alludes to this when it says, for they will not die anymore, that's us, because they are equal to the angels. Oh, people are like, ooh, we're equal to angels? What's that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. It means we ain't gonna die no more because this is specifically a reference to their immortality. And so it's within the context of marriage that where God instructs us to be fruitful and to multiply. And because we are equal with the angels in this way after the resurrection, there's no need to expand the human race anymore because death will be no more. You guys, you guys see what I'm saying? No more dying because we are going, so, so there's no need to, to procreate anymore. And so since we're talking about this in kingdom, let me say it explicitly. There's not neither going to be marriage or sex in heaven. Marriage and intercourse are both uh, temporary reminders of something greater, and it needs to be said, if this disappoints you, you're hoping in the wrong thing. Jesus is, uh, is, can fulfill us now and in the kingdom, and that's what should sustain us today, and that's what will be our reality in the future. And so a significant implication for marriage's temporary nature is that it's not ultimate. And so this, the, the transience of marriage points us to our eternal relationship with Christ. As Paul said, the profound mystery of marriage is not an end in itself. It refers to Christ and the church, Ephesians 5, 32. So marriage is simply a taste of an eternal relationship that we'll have with Christ forever. And no earthly relationship, no matter how good, will compare to it. So in an effort to value marriage, I think folk, a lot of folks, single and married folks, idolize it. And yes, I'm aware that marriage is one of the ways that God has given us, or things that God has given us as a cornerstone of society, and I think we should fight for its integrity and everything like that. So I'm, I'm, that's, that's the team I'm on. But I think our unhealthy elevation of marriage, making it ultimate, is evidenced by our disappointment with our spouse oftentimes, or even disappointment with our singleness. And so to married folks, if you're constantly frustrated with your spouse, not giving you what you deserve, could it be that you're, that you're not longing for a spouse, but you're longing for a savior? I think too often we look to our spouse saying, you ought to give me this, but only God can give you that. Free them from that burden. Look to Jesus, and then Jesus is there, and that bridegroom is coming, and that grace that you get from that will actually free you to be loved by a sinner and to love a sinner, and that is actually a joyous thing. I've also seen married folks 
make marriage ultimate by living for their spouse's approval. And pleasing the Lord becomes an afterthought. And this shouldn't be uh, because our, our, our marriages are, are temporal. Yes, we should foster our marital relationship. Yes, we need to do all that. But what we, uh, what we cannot do is act like because we're doing this, we don't have to pursue Jesus. That relationship is the one that's going to last. That relationship is the one that actually gives you, gives you a chance to have joy in your temporary marriage. And that's what we have to not get mixed up. And so last thing here. And this, uh, and this is a particular t- uh, temptation in the era of social, social media, but sometimes we make marriage ultimate by working extremely hard to make our marriages seem perfect. We post certain pictures on social media. We're, we're extra loving in public, but we're cold behind closed doors. We're not open and honest about where we need to grow in our marriages, and, and, and we don't invite both married folks and single saints into our marriages to help us grow into strengthening it. We can't make marriage ultimate, even as married folks. And now to my single brothers and sisters. As, we, as we've hinted at all morning, marriage is not the end-all, be-all of human existence. Single saints are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And if you're single for a time, you're single for the foreseeable future, and maybe you're single again, the truth is the same. You are not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. And so I know that many of you are asking God for contentment, and our Lord hears your prayers. But you're human And I can imagine there's moments of of disappointment or loneliness. And I can sense your heartache in those times. And uh, these emotions are real, but allow the scriptures here to wash over. And let me reassure you that you're not missing out on the essence of marriage. Marriage in this life is only a sign of the richness that's to come. Hear me now. You're not missing it. Real life is not passing you by. Because real life is to come. It's in the future. And let's not get so caught up with the sign that we miss the essence of what's going on here. And so I, I know it might be hard to hear this from a, single, from a married guy, but as your pastor, all I can do is hold up the scripture and, say, and tell you that you know, your, your bridegroom is coming. Your bridegroom, single saint, is coming. And, you know, and your wedding feast will be so much more grand than any you've ever attended in this life. Some of you guys might be saying, oh, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Not forever, because he is coming. And may the Lord minister to us through his word and carry us with these promises until we see him face to face. And in God's providence... This, this text lands in our series just nine days before Valentine's Day. And my dear sister Katie Weaver recently reminded me about how challenging the holiday is for single folks. And especially those affected or, or who are attracted to those of the same sex, but who are trying to choose righteous living. And so she helped me understand that the value of single folks pressing into their communities uh, and intentionally trying to serve others over these next nine days Because as we serve others, our own desires, our own needs begin to come secondary. It's such a wonderful gift to live in a community. Let's press in. And so uh, 
after reorienting our paradigm uh, about marriage in the kingdom, Jesus discusses the resurrection head on. Let's read verses 37 to 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, that's the burning bush, where he, 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 where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. And so Jesus starts off with saying, even Moses, and be, because the Sadducees believed only in the books of, Mo, of, of Moses, which are the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, that they were authoritative. And so Jesus made his argument from the place that was directly pertinent to where they would uh, believe. And so this is actually a great apologetic tactic for us as well. He began his argument in a place directly relevant to his questioners. And so by referencing Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus, he insists that to deny the resurrection from the dead is to deny what happened at the burning bush. And so Moses, when Moses called out that the Lord was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, years after they died, he was insinuating that they continued to exist. The patriots were not the, not the patriots, the patriarchs, <laughs> don't know where that came from, uh, are not dead. Patriots are too, but you know what I'm saying? Um, uh, so this language assumes the resurrection of the dead. And so as Jesus said in verse 38 of today's text, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. And so what he's saying is even though that they are dead, they live. And so if you boil this all down, Jesus is saying, if you deny the resurrection, then you're denying the book of Moses, which is a big deal to the Sadducees. And so Jesus', Jesus is, um, uh, insistence upon eternal life begs the question, what does the afterlife look like? What is life after death? And there's so much to say here, but the Apostle Paul says it well. He says, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's 2 Corinthians verse five, or chapter 5, verse 8. But however, Christians are not waiting on life immediately after death because those uh, who are in the presence of God will be disembodied at that point because our bodies will still be in the grave, but our souls will be in his presence. We're ultimately waiting for what theologian N.T. Wright calls life after, life after death. When all that God created in the fullness of who we are, mind, or a soul, and body will be brought back together in this kingdom. Remember that picture of the, the dead in Christ will rise first? Because even our bodies will be risen up, brought back together with our souls. We'll be back down on this earth that God created, declared good, and then we'll be walking together. There's not going to be fat babies playing harps here. There's going to be worship to our king. There's going to be, we'll be reunited with our loved ones who are in Christ. Such a wonderful promise to us right now. We'll be in community that's unstained by sin. We'll express our gifts that the Lord has given us without any limitations. We'll enjoy the beauty of God's handiwork in nature without the interruptions of earthquakes and tsunamis and animal attacks. We'll walk streets of gold and all this brought to us by our King our provider, our bridegroom, our savior, Jesus Christ. And so now, let's see what the Sadducees did after Jesus destroyed their argument. Uh, verse 38, or 39 and 40. Then some of the scribes answered, 
teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer uh, dared to ask him any question. And so I think the appropriate exegesis for this is that they got sunned. <laughs> and they sat down because there was nothing else to say. And so uh, as we sort of conclude our time together, uh, I think it's important for us to, to dwell upon at least three questions that the scripture raises for us. And the first question is this, in what way is my life driving my theology? In what way is my life driving my theology? As we saw early on in the introduction, the Sadducees, they had a very luxurious life. Uh, and because of that, they were living with every comfort today for them. And so there's no need for a resurrection. So what ways is your life potentially driving your theology? Second question, in what ways have I made marriage ultimate rather than the reality it points to? I think this one's helpful and pertinent to all of us. In what ways have I made marriage ultimate rather than the reality it points to? This is the one for both single folks and married folks to ask. And then lastly, um, what specific ways can eternity with Christ encourage us in, this, in the present? There's so many things that we can be encouraged by, y'all. In any circumstance, we can look to the future and say, he's coming. He's coming. No matter what you're going through today, you can look ahead and you can say with assurance that he's coming. What's your, what, how do you fill in that blank this morning? How do you fill in that blank? I know that there's, there's things that are just sort of cycling through your mind. It's not just one thing, it's many things. So as you think about those things, remember, saints, he's coming. He hasn't just left us here just to languish and to figure it out on our own. The king is coming. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, you know, certainly thinking about these things will be helpful, but I think there's a bigger problem that you have. If your life comes to an end and you don't have faith in Christ, you'll be separated from God and his grace forever. You might be thinking, well, you know, I don't read my Bible every day. I'm good. I come to church like twice a year. I'm fine with it. You know, I, I, I pray seldom, but whatever. But what I would say to you is that while you haven't pursued God's grace, God's grace still marks your life. Any love that you experience because of God's common grace is because God is love. Any happiness that you recall in this life is a gift from God because he is where joy comes from. Any help that you have, to whatever degree, is a gift from God because he is our sustainer. And scripture says every good and perfect gift comes from above, and that is so true. And so everything you have that's good comes from the very hand of God, and you're flirting with an eternal existence away from any of that grace. So turn to Jesus today. He will take the things and the sin that separates you from him, the things that you're trying to figure out, how do I get rid of this stuff myself? How do I clean myself up enough? How do I do that? No, no. Jesus will take it. He died, rose from the dead, victorious over your sin and mine, if we let him be that for us. Give it all to Jesus, he'll accept you. With all your emotional baggage, with all your worries, with all your fears, with all your shame, he will transform you into a child of his. You'll be an heir to his kingdom 
where his rule and his reign will last forever. Join the family as we just sit and wait for the glory of God to come back and we'll see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. I pray that your word would speak powerfully in any way that we needed to speak, I pray that it would speak. And I pray that we would hear it, and I pray that we would believe. May your spirit work in us to remind us of the truths that we've heard read in Scripture today. The songs that we've sung, may we, may we be reminded of them, Lord. We thank you that, you that you haven't just left us without a witness to yourself. The Scripture is gold, God. And we, and we as we've been in Luke forever, can still testify to his goodness, God. So we, we, we ask for your grace, and we praise you forever and ever. Amen.